Hello, everybody, and a very big welcome today to the third part of our series about the contemporary risks at the boardroom at the moment. And of course, the things we're talking about in this three-part series is social inclusion, gender equity, and climate change. And of course, leading those by starting at the top of the boardroom. As I said, this is the third part of a three-part series. So what I'd love to talk to you all about today is just to recap on what have we learned so far, because we really have had some incredible speakers so far. Our first series, we talked to Claire Brown, who is the CEO and the co-founder of Women on Boards. And it was a fascinating discussion. She really gave us really good insight into social inclusion and gender equity. And she made this really interesting statement, which I think sort of encapsulates the difference between those two things for all of us. She said it's important to address that diversity and inclusion, they're just not the same thing and they often get mixed up. She said that diversity is a state of being and not just something that can be governed. In other words, you come with your diversity and that's who you are and what you are. But inclusion is a set of behaviours that can be governed and can be changed. And I think that is a very positive thing for us all to remember. The act of being inclusive is something that we can actually learn and build our skills around and strive for. But diversity is what we come with and therefore it's important to note that and make sure that we are thoughtful of what people come with and we encourage that diversity. Claire gave us a fantastic example of how to see the difference between equality versus equity. And I love, and I wanted to reshare with you this diagram or this picture that she showed us that I think really helps us understand it. She talked about equality was everybody getting the same leg up. And if you see this picture, that doesn't help everybody by having exactly the same size leg up. The second picture she talked about was equity. In other words, depending on your circumstances, needing a different type of leg up or different type of support. But what she gave us all insight into and what we all need to aim for is actually removing the barrier altogether that requires these two things to be thought of. And I thought that was just a fantastic example. And I think that speaks to our role on the board when we're looking at gender equity and social inclusion in our organisations. It's, it's not good enough to just focus on everybody having equal opportunity. It's not good enough just to focus on equity. Our job as boards, as directors, is to look for the barrier that creates these problems in the first place. And there's a skill and there's an art in that. And I think just knowing that is going to change the way we ask questions, change the way we take our role seriously for implementing these things from the top. Our second webinar 
was really interesting as well. And I was very lucky because I got to talk to our wonderful partners at the Victorian Health Association, VHA and ACHG. And I spoke to Michaela Dryberg, I spoke to Joanne Morford, and I spoke with Julia Cookson. And we talked about what is happening, what do we know is happening at the boards at the moment in relation to implementing social inclusion, gender equity, and climate change. And of course, they talked quite a lot about there is quite a bit of legislation out there right now that we need to know about and think about at the boardroom table. But they, a really great thing that Joanne said, and I, I thought was a really good message to remind us all of, it's really important for boards to recognise the role they play in leading the organisation in these things. We all know that boards set the culture for the organisation, particularly with the issues we've been talking about today. And what she went on to say is, so if it's not important to the board, how on earth can we expect it to be important to the rest of the organisation? So what I thought that really good message was about was the heads up that like everything else, like safety, quality, clinical governance, those sorts of things, this also needs to be top of the agenda in our discussions at the boardroom table. Otherwise, for some reason, if we're not talking about it at the board, why should everybody else talk about it? So just to recap on our learnings. So our learnings were that I think pretty much it's a given that everybody knows these are really important subjects. These are here, they're in legislation. We need to actually have policies and procedures about them. But most importantly, tokenism is not effective. Tokenism means that we just give it lip service. Tokenism means that we don't actually shine the light on ourselves and see, are we really doing this? And it was really interesting because uh, in my discussion with Michaela and Julia, they actually talked about young people who are going for jobs at organisation can tell just by looking at their website within a couple of minutes what is their attitude to gender equity? What is their attitude to social inclusion? So I thought that was a really good heads up to us all. Tokenism is not effective. Just talking about it is not enough. And the big message that came through from all of our previous presenters is that really fundamentally, this is about cultural change. And cultural change does start at the top. The board does set the culture for these things. And what they were saying very clearly from their own experience is that just changing your policies, just making sure your CEO has a policy about this, it's in our strategy, and those sorts of things is not enough. We need to actually set the tone from the top and enact the change ourselves. So where to from here? When I was thinking about this third part of our series, I thought if we're saying how important all these things are and we're talking about cultural change and how it has to start at the top, I was thinking about what are the things that impact on our ability around the boardroom table 
to actually have the conversations we need. Once we've actually felt comfortable that the policies and procedures and those things are in place. And you wouldn't believe it. I had a little bit of an experience that I want to share with you all that has actually really helped me to understand what it was we needed to talk about today to bring this subject full circle. I was actually with my incredibly lovely young 21-year-old niece and we both were visiting my mum who, like a lot of elderly people, wants to live on her own at home and out of respect and, of course, knowing as much about aged care as I do, we'll do anything we can to support her to do that. And one of her favourite things is that we come and we share food together which is really important after we've done the chores and been very helpful. And we were chit-chatting away, as you do, particularly with, you know, another gorgeous young person with us, and we were talking about some of the most recent events about Parliament and what was happening and talking about these webinars and social inclusion and gender equity. And we were talking about what had happened most recently in Parliament and about the negativity around the culture in Parliament and men's behaviour and so on. And you wouldn't believe it, but my mother suddenly, her head almost did a 360, and she suddenly launched into that is how men behave and that naughty little girl should have been sent home with her bottom smacked and told not to stay out late. And my niece and I sat there with our mouth open but both of us looked at each other and we were way too scared to say anything we were way too scared to damage our relationship or out of respect not challenge our mum on that incredibly horrible statement that she made but she genuinely believed it was okay and I remember thinking at the time this is how it feels this is how it feels as an adult, as an intelligent person sitting in a group on a board or whatever and suddenly thinking, I can't rock the boat. In fact, my next guest speaker and I talk about this and we talk about what we call psychological safety and we talk about that uh, you don't, for the sake of maintaining a relationship, you actually will be silent. You won't actually say anything. And what I thought was, that's what it's like. That is what happens in boardrooms. Power sits with different people and it disallows others or people feel unsafe to rock the boat about subjects that need to be discussed, about barriers that need to be removed so that gender equity, social inclusion or even important discussions about climate change can actually happen. And I thought, this is it. This is what we've got to talk about in our webinar today. And I need to find someone who I can get to bring this information to the table. And serendipitously, at exactly the same time as I thought that, our amazing partner, Leanne Ryan from the Governance Institute, rang me and said, you're not going to believe this, B, but we've, I've got this incredible person for you to meet who's just done this incredible research and written a benchmark paper for talking about boardroom psychology safety. And then just as I was about to ring Carolyn, who is our guest, who I'll introduce in a minute, Claire Brown from Women on Boards rang me and said, 
I've got this amazing person I want you to meet called Carolyn and she's got to tell you about this psychological safety in the boardroom benchmark report that she's just done. So I can't tell you how pleased I am to introduce you all to my special guest today to help us understand, now that we know this is our job at the top, to lead the discussions on these things, we need to understand what are the barriers in the boardroom that right there are alive and prevent us from feeling psychologically safe to actually push the barrow on these conversations and to deal with some of the unconscious bias that is alive and well, in my case, in females, in other people's cases, in other males, females, other types of directors who sit around the boardroom table or other influences. So, Carolyn Grant, a very big welcome to you today. I am so looking forward to you presenting the findings of your 2021 benchmark about psychological safety in the boardroom. And I really look forward to chatting to you at the end. And I know we've already got quite a few really important questions about this subject. So please, I'd love to hand over to you and please tell us a little bit about you. I know you're the founder and managing director of Six Ps, but let's hear a little bit about you. Thank you, Fee. That's a really lovely introduction. I love that story as well. It's a good <laughs> one. So I am the founder of Six Ps Marketing and Engagement, and we build a lot of tools to actually help our business leaders, our board members to create better decisions, really. And we do that without with our focus is really on people, so from our customer perspective and from our employee perspective. And to your point, I was a member of a board and attending some AICD refreshers, some Governance Institute refreshers, and, and I'm a doodler. I, I start to doodle a lot of things whenever I'm listening. Um, it's a great way for me to remember things and then go back to later. And I was running particularly late one day to one of the refreshers, and so I just needed to, you know, take a breath and listen. And when I was sort of looking at what I was writing, and it was a, a lot of discussion that was going on around the boardroom table and around some of the negative experiences. And, of course, that was causing a lack of advocacy, really, for boardroom positions, especially ones that are non-paid. And, uh, and at the time, I was struggling with one of the boards that I was with, and I thought, wow, it's not just me. This is, is from issues around being stereotyped into your skill set, issues around not being able to speak up, issues around the debate between recording and not recording but actually not feeling heard, issues around decisions being made off-site. And so I started to look, maybe there's a study to be done on psychological safety. And of course, I had done a neuroscience and leadership um, course, and this was really fundamental. I was already doing it within organisations, but in terms of boardrooms, there, there didn't really seem to be a lot of focus on it. And so that's what I did. I started doing the research myself with some really great networkers, such as Leanne Ryan from the Governance Institute, from um, Claire, from Women on Boards, where they were just getting the details around going, this is a really fascinating thing that you're doing. Let's, let's see if we can help you and get some information around. So I was really, really grateful. So in terms of psychological safety, a lot of people ask, well, what is it? And, and sometimes get it confused. Um, and you'll see even in the results of the survey that some people had a perception when they first came in. So for me, I break it down into four key things, which is, do I feel included and do I feel part of the team? Do I feel safe to learn in this environment? Can I ask questions? Can I ask for help? 
do I feel safe to contribute? Can I give my opinion freely without, you know, feeling unsafe? And do I feel like I can challenge the status quo or, or problem solve or initiate? And if I can do that without the fear of embarrassment, humiliation, or that I'm going to be punished in some way, like I might miss out on a project, I might miss out on a promotion, I might be excluded from something that I like to participate in, you know, that's when you've got psychological safety. And, and really when we have that, when we have psychological safety around our boardrooms and around our decision-making in particular, then we've got this comfort level that allows us to use this, you know, in intellectual friction to actually get the best results and to actually have really robust discussions around what we're doing. So that to me is, is the easiest way to describe psychological safety. So when we took it out with the benchmark, we looked at boardroom psychological safety. And of course, a lot of that included our senior leadership teams, as well as our board members, because often they're reporting through to them, but also they're making a lot of decisions in the boardroom. We also were able to look at some of the middle management layers and, and some of the frontline teams. And because of the very nature of the evaluation tools that we use, we also had a real great comparison with some of the full organisations. So we were kind of lucky in terms of this research. So if I looked at the highlights, we found a positive correlation between psychological safety in the, in the boardroom and the assessment of the quality of decision-making that's going on within those boardrooms, and, and that was 63. They, we also found the advocacy, of course, I'm right into customer centricity, so I love finding out if we're going to actually be referring things. And it was a question that I'd actually removed from the, from the white paper, and then I went, actually, this is great. Let's ask a further question because I was looking at, in terms of volunteer board members or non-paid roles, are we actually creating an environment where people are wanting to actually be on them. And, and what we found is that there was a positive correlation between the psychological safety in the boardroom and whether we become advocates of future leadership roles or board positions in the future. So what we found essentially was that four out of 10 people that responded felt safe within their boardrooms and only three out of 10 felt levels of trust. And when we took that down into what the impact was then, that only 25% of them believed that their decisions were highly effective. When we looked at from the picture of people and culture decisions, only 13% were highly effective. And then when we asked them about how personally effective do they think they're being on their board in terms of being valued and being able to contribute, only 35% said they felt highly effective on those boardrooms. So that, as a highlight, that really resounded with me and it proved that we were looking at what are the quality of decisions do we have on our boards and is it corresponding to that level of psychological safety? So that was a, a resounding yes. And I guess importantly for anyone on boards and within leadership teams who comes under that definition of a responsible person, this creates a whole lot of impacts then around our exposure to personal risk, our exposure to organisational risk, as well as our ability to influence performance in terms of can we get better results and still have really happy healthy cultures within our organisations where we're all thriving. So that's, they're probably the highlights. There are, there are so many more. The white paper goes into a lot more detail, but for me, this page kind of um, sums up where we need to actually put some focus. We had some, and this was really, this is more my fun slide. It, it kind of goes down into a few more things where everyone has a question that goes a little bit more, but 
We asked some cheeky questions too of some and like, so 46% of the people we spoke to, and we did this from a qualitative and quantitative perspective. We had face-to-face discussions. We had um, Zoom discussions as well as just the survey results. So those who were asked, 46% said that if they removed at least one colleague from the boardroom table or within that leadership team or decision-making team, then things would be better. We had 30% or only 30% said they actually feel safe to speak up all the time. Whereas 45% said, no, look, it's it's actually quite hard if we want to actually, if we have a dissenting opinion, if we're going against so that whole challenging. 56% believe that a lack of people skills contributed to that silence. So we didn't have people skills within the, the CEO or within the chair to actually be able to facilitate really good debate and discussion without personal offence. Nor did we have great conversational intelligence skills. And I think we can talk to that a bit more later, but it's one of the things that we say is that, you know, if we're going to action anything, that's what we need to do. 14% believe that their skills and strengths were being valued. So only only 14%. So when we go back to in terms of, which is a great segue into it, we're talking about being inclusive at the boardroom table as opposed to just being there. We've got a great majority of people here who, who are actually feeling like they're actually undervalued around that boardroom table and that their skills and their strengths have not been optimised. 27% believe that there was accountability for performance and behaviour. So again, quite low and this was a real contributing factor as well to being able to trust and increase our levels of trust around the the boardroom table and 40% believe there was absolutely no accountability whatsoever for behaviour nor performance so we had some really interesting uh, feedback from a lot of our teams. What a great slide wow yeah we, uh, this is one of my favourites because it looked at the levels of trust. We, we actually, uh, as a request, we, we added in a trust diagnostic to a lot of our organisations and our boardrooms and to, to really compare and understand some of the change management projects, the responsiveness, our ability to be agile and adaptive. And when we looked at the level of trust, what we found is within our leadership teams, it was really poor. So only two out of ten. literally. Or is, that, is that between each other, Caroline? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, around that, that within the, the boardroom and within the leadership executive teams, for example, that the 26% felt that they had high levels of trust. So 52% in this case with the with the boards said that we have actually low level to no levels of trust within the organisation, uh, within that team. But when we compared that to in the same organisation from our frontline teams, they had 63%. So theirs was significantly higher. They are really doing their best to try and drive that psychological safety at the front line. And those middle managers are really stepping up and, and trying to display and probably protect a lot of their teams from some of the decisions that are coming through from the top. And one of the things we did ask was, how much do you trust the decisions that are coming through from the leadership team? And um, and only 36% said that they trusted the decisions coming through from the leadership team. When we talk leadership, we're talking in with this survey, we had board members and executive leadership teams in terms of your CEO and any of that top layer in terms of director of marketing. It may have been, it might have been director of sales, director of IT. Does that, hopefully that answers your question. So that's who we're talking about. And and very much we're talking about anyone who's in that boardroom making decisions that are, that are relevant to an organisation. Wow. That's yeah, amazing. I can't, wait, I can't wait to hear about some of the, the, the actual things that they don't trust each other about. But this is a good diagram. 
This is a great diagram. This, yeah. this goes to your point, and it's something that we start with in, in all of our training. We, we really try to get everyone to understand around how we behave and how we're thinking in the boardrooms, and in particular, even around just our conversations, that perfect example that you gave us with your mother, you know, I was saying to you, we often choose between two things. We, we choose yeah. between being friends and saying nothing, so I can't speak up because I want to maintain the relationship, or we think well, we'll say something that's in conflict with that and we'll just take that relationship out. And and I think it's the fact that we try to choose between these two as opposed to putting an and in between to say, I can be honest and I can speak up and maintain that relationship mm. that we that we struggle with sometimes. I think and, you're right. Um, yeah, I think you're right, Caroline, because I was conscious at the time of also the role modelling to my young niece who I could tell was thinking, well, if B says something, I'll say something. <laughs> And, and I, I felt like I let us both down because I said actually uh, nothing. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think sometimes when you're taken by surprise too, and especially when you've almost, I always talk about the effect where you've gone from this, this is great, we're sitting around a table, we're having a great conversation, we're, we're relating, we're, all our oxytocin is there, we're bonding really closely together, this is great. And then suddenly one thing and you've immediately gone, wow, that was a that was a really, I mean, and now I'm in surprise and I'm highly emotive about, you know, so you're almost flipping from, from this, and I think half the time a lot of our emotions and, and how we behave and respond is actually due to that, that we go from one extreme to another so quickly that we're actually not able to take in and, and regulate the way we normally would sometimes if we've got some time to think about that. But it's certainly what we found in the boardroom is a lot of our conversations causing this real left side of the brain response in terms of where we're actually becoming very defensive and we start triggering that fight, flight, freeze or appease response um, and we start going into silence or aggression in terms of our conversations. Um, and, and what we want to do is try and make sure that we've got those conversations at all levels that are really creating that oxytocin where we're actually building the levels of trust and building integrity where all of our strategic thinking goes on but then we're actually able to share and collaborate and co-design a lot more and that's what we try to do so we when we're talking about um, some of the interventions that we have then we very much start with let's understand us and ourselves first us I and before we can actually start going towards we and understanding how we can then start having better social interactions so yeah it's a great place to start and to that point, we've already got one fantastic question, and I know people have asked this question before. This is very true, but new directors or new members of the team would automatically feel some of these things anyway. So how is that kind of factored into this as well? It's so true. Anyone that's starting an organisation, those first three months are, are critical. And, and you know yourself, you can remember when you first started, you're you're kind of a bit silent, you're you're just watching and you're observing. It's the same thing in our boardrooms. We bring people in and they're watching, observing, but they come with these amazing past histories, perceptions and experiences that we're really not engaging. And often they won't say anything. And I had a really great example of a credit union board that, that I was talking to and, and they were saying, look, we've, we've I've only just come in and she said, and I can see where we need to bring in psychological safety. We've been talking engagement and the CEO is trying to tell us that these are all non-regrettable levers. This churn rate is extremely high. And she said, I feel like everything that we're doing is just recruiting more and more people as opposed to actually getting any growth. And I said, oh, well, you know, it's something you can raise. It's 
And she said, oh, no, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly raise it now. No, I just have to be quiet and just wait and see what happens. And, you know, so we're missing a lot of gold, I think, from people that come in early where they're not actually biased by the biases that we already have around our boardroom table in terms of how we behave and the types of values that we have. So we probably need to look at how we're responding and in, um, inducting a lot of our newbies to leadership roles to be able to extract the best information from them in a safe way. Mm, it's a really valid point. Yeah, exactly. And how do we take the, the feedback as well? Because it only takes one example of us responding poorly to feedback that sets that scene and, and that tone that says, oh, okay, I'm not going to say that again. I'm not even going to speak up again because that's now I'm, I'm going to be that, that bit of humiliation or that little bit of calling you out. So we've also got to know how to respond favourably to feedback as well and to actually be appreciative of it on appreciation day, not a bad thing to link in there. Feed. No, no, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So... I guess the, the next point of that is what are we doing around the boardroom tables in terms of prioritising how we can actually speak up. And, and a lot of, I guess, the white paper, we do go into here's some of our, our key priorities, here's what some of the challenges are at the moment. And I think it would be interesting to hear from everyone else what do they see as the key priorities to kind of driving that psychological safety and what do they see as some of the challenges within those social boardroom settings. I think that's really good, Carolyn, and we've actually got... Uh, one question, someone would like to know, can you expand a little bit more on the numbers of directors and boards and the, the types and a little bit more information about your, because I know you had a large group and a large cross-section, the sample size, the board types, and were they on the board for a long time? And yeah, great question. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, very good question. So we interviewed 623, we surveyed 623 board members and then we also had leadership team outside of that. We had uh, 22% were female and we had uh, 1% that chose not to identify and so about 77% males. So definitely not a, a female issue around psychological safety. We covered a lot of areas we had non-for-profits we had membership organizations we had health organizations to family-owned businesses and it was very very typical majority of the of who we had spoken to had been on boards for six years or more we had a small percentage of course that were one year and under because we do like to try and link to, to how people are feeling when they first come on board. But we had a whole range of skill sets as well and different positions on the board. So we had a lot of chairs. We had a lot of, I almost see the company directors at most of the time are the ones that were really clear to pick up issues and the dynamic around the boardroom table and, and to speak very openly and almost be the first to come with an issue, which I thought was really, really interesting as opposed to as opposed to chairs. So we had treasurers. So we had a very wide representative sample. Mm, that sounds great. And and this is great because lots more questions. So could you remember any um, of the variations between the answers between, say, the men and women or I think you've already kind of alluded to some of the differences between tenure. Yeah, there was a difference between tenure. The other was probably more in relation to the leadership team 
and and those that are in decision making to the middle management team and the organization the other big one that we had was around responsiveness where our leadership team believed i think it was around 56 percent that they were highly responsive to the needs of of the organization whereas the actual middle management and lower actually only 26 percent believed that that was the case and that sent up a really big flare for me in terms of what are we doing then? Because if most of our employees are believing and frontline managers are believing that we've got some real issues around responsiveness, and that was around employee issues, around customer issues. So that to me is a really good indicator of agility and our ability to innovate and our ability to be customer-centric. All the things that we're actually saying from a, definitely from a COVID and post-COVID perspective, we need if we're going to be able to be sustainable and certainly before it you know customer centricity and and being able to be responsive and and adapt to what's happening in the environment so though that was probably one of the biggest ones that I liked to look at and I did I have to say I did get some pleasure out of looking at the differences you know because we do have a leadership gap that we're trying to close here to say well what are the expectations of our staff our, our customers and our community in terms of what we're delivering on the in decisions Mm, no, that, that's very true. And just to the point of were there differences between the males and females answers? Or no, not really. That? Just mm. different examples. Females, I think a lot of the time when they were talking to me, it was very much about having the seat at the boardroom table, but actually not that sense of inclusion. So I'm here and I'm great. I've ticked your box for diversity, but I'm not actually participating in the way that I can. There was a lot of, and I found myself, because I come from a marketing background. I've I've delved into leadership and neuroscience in, in the last few years. So even from my own perspective, that being pigeonholed into this skill set that you have, even though it might not be necessarily where you've actually got a lot of experience. And I think I've given you an example before, Fee, of, you know, so I'm immediately put on the, a chair of a marketing committee or put in the marketing team. But in fact, I was sort of going, well, I'd actually like to be in the governance and risk. And actually, because I don't think governance and risk can actually handle the people and culture issues that we've got at the moment, I think we need to actually create a subcommittee around that. And I'd like to chair that. So but, but that would actually be stepping outside of my stereotype and create quite a risk response to a lot of those members. The other, I think, the big difference was from a male perspective is that they were saying that the way that they are brought onto a board creates an issue for them in terms of being able to speak up. So if they've been tapped on the shoulder by a a mate or, or a colleague, they find it very difficult to speak up if their colleague has sponsored a project or is saying something different. So they find it very difficult to have have that intellectual debate with their colleagues because they believe that they owe them some loyalty and that they have to actually be quiet as a result of that. And I was really surprised by that. I was and and similarly where where they go, they're stereotyped into their skill set and therefore can't leave that, even though they might have had experience um, in other areas that could be really well valued across the board. That is so, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And the the next question, people are really keen to know. So from this work, have you developed frameworks? Have you got some tips, some some helpful things like building trust or assisting people with how to build psychological safety or even just some ideas on how to improve psychological safety? Because I think that would be uh, really useful, uh, Carolyn, if you've got some thoughts or ideas, even things that we could start doing. Because I agree with you, these are barriers to being 
inclusive. And long before we look at our policies and procedures, it's just these simple things. So I'd love to hear some tips, please. We, we asked everyone in the benchmark, actually, what was their priority? So as, as we went through and, and went through the trust, then, of course, the last question was really around, so what do you think is the priority for you? And outweighing, and, and look, there was only a really small percentage difference between them in, in terms of standard deviations, but the first one was actually apply fairness and equity across the boardroom. Give us all an equal opportunity to talk out. Make sure that you are facilitating discussions really well. So for me, if I was to give the tool to that, it's around educating and upskilling in terms of our conversational intelligence. How do we create those safe places that we can have conversations and how do we know when people are getting uh, emotionally involved and that we might actually have a, a situation where we're going outside of that safety and we're throwing people into this defensive response like on the left-hand side so we're not actually going to get the best out of that conversation. So in terms of organisations, that changes as well. But for me, it's about... A, educating yourself on psychological safety because this could be one of your greatest risks that you're going to be facing within the next five years, but also making sure that you're measuring and monitoring it from an organisational perspective because you don't know what you don't know from even around the boardroom table but from an organisation's perspective. The second one that everyone said was model the right behaviours and we need to have the frameworks to actually assist that. A lot of the time when we were having the interviews, that lack of accountability around behaviour was probably one of the, the biggest challenges and struggles that people were having. How do we actually make people identify that they've actually stepped out of line? Because when we start having the conversations with them, they become defensive and then it doesn't become a nice conversation. So we tend to actually just quickly walk away from it or we let it go or we actually start behaving similarly. And so we're not getting the, the right things out of that. But the other is this, this tendency to actually use the constitution as a almost as your shield around behaviour. Well, actually, you haven't put anything in the constitution around what that code of conduct is and there is no policy or procedure to actually link to that. And, and that then goes back to the organisation seeing these poor behaviours and we haven't got the right policies and procedures to actually support the, the removal or the consequences to that behaviour. And so then our levels of trust go, then our organisations start using methods and processes and procedures outside of the organisation to actually get some attention, which is often going to Safe Work New South Wales, Safe Work Queensland, going to your, you know, your tribunals to actually get a response because they don't trust what's going on internally. And after that happens, then as, as leaders, we've lost control of that story. We can't take that narrative back. It's now under somebody else's control. So that to me poses a really great risk. The other one was simply to be valued, to actually allow us to appear at the boardroom level without judgment. Don't try to judge me based on my history. Don't try and judge me based on my culture or my profession. Just accept me as me and then when I'm able to contribute, I'll contribute. And, and if we can all listen to that, then we actually feel like we've had that opportunity and we're doing as much as we can around that boardroom table to be able to actually involve ourselves in that critical thinking. So in terms of being valued, that was really, really critical because most people said, sure, I'm, I'm here but I've got these amazing strengths that I just haven't been able to bring to this board. And I think we're waiting. We're waiting in hope that we'll eventually be able to share that. And, and it's not happening, which I think is a real shame because I think we have so much to share and to give. The other one was around, I was really surprised by the lack of sharing of information prior to decisions. That was really interesting. 
And, uh, and I did have a, a chat with a gentleman recently who said, you know, I'm really surprised by that. I see us sharing a lot of information. And to put it into some context, it went back to that when we did a trust diagnostic, what we found is that a lot of people were really questioning the motives of people around that boardroom table and that sometimes personal motivations were actually superseding the organisational values and also their, their strategic intent. And so, therefore, information would be withheld or changed or hidden basically to support some of those views or objectives of that person. And so he sort of went, okay, I can see where that would happen. Absolutely. Yes, when we're motivated by something else other than the organisation, I can see how some of the information might not actually be to its fullest. So that was another one. And I think that comes back to also allowing enough time for people to be able to look at things instead of actually coming to the boardroom with only a couple of days to make a major decision. And there's some really great governance processes around trying to change the agenda a little bit to put things that need critical decision-making up front. But in terms of this, this is about giving people enough time to read the papers. I think also communication levels in terms of actually bringing reports to the board and actually circulating board reports is really low that people are going... Have you, have you seen what I've been given that I'm supposed to be making this decision? So having really robust templates around business cases or around how to actually suggest and persuade board members to a decision, that was probably another thing I think that came up really quite frequently. They are excellent tips. Thank you so much. And it's good to hear that in your white paper that we'll be sharing with people after our webinar today, there is that information, which would be really helpful. And last but not least, We'll make this our last question for today. But somebody's actually asked, okay, what about these questions? Like, have we thought about some questions that we can ask as part of our board evaluation as a heads up for this, which is the perfect segue to our conversation, Carolyn, which I think has been a really positive one. And that is that you and I have been discussing that we do actually need to have as part of not only our evaluation about the board itself, but also around individual directors understanding this psychological safety and identifying some different skills that will support them or not support them in, in being able to do this successfully. And the great news is, everybody, that Carolyn does have some fantastic questionnaires and things like that. But in actual fact, with the Governance Evaluator, we actually have been working on adding some questions about these contemporary risks, which, of course, is climate change, social inclusion and gender equity. And Carolyn is going to work with us to have some high-level questions about this, which can lead to some of the work that you do, Carolyn, with boards at a deeper level. So if you just wanted to talk for a minute about that, I think that will be very helpful for people and helpful to know that this kind of information is coming along quite soon to help people as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think to answer your question around your meetings, there are some really simple things you can do. And in fact, I think even Claire mentioned them in her talk with yeah. you, Sophie, which is having that little meeting survey that's just a quick pulse survey that says, 
was I able to raise my issue today? Was I able to actually get shared time to be able to contribute to conversations around some of those key decisions? And, and even giving it a rating out of 10. With one of my committees, I used to always ask for a rating out of 10 to say, you know, and how can we improve the meeting for you? But also, have we created an environment where everyone felt comfortable, safe to speak up? So I think that at its very minimum, little pulse surveys like that can really help as long as we've got the ability to take the feedback and action it. And I think that's where we let down so many people that we're not actioning some of the results and that feedback that they give us. In terms of organisational psychological safety, absolutely. We've been six P's, so my business rolls out psychological safety assessments and we have full reports as well that go with that. And we do that on board levels as well. And, and we'll just start to do a lot of training now in terms of legacy leadership frameworks with, with a partnership with women on boards to actually look at some of those competencies that we're bringing in. So, yeah, there's a very big competency list that we need to develop to be able to improve our psychological safety on our boards, improve our communication, improve our conversational intelligence. And, yeah, I think with, with the governance evaluator and board evaluator, I think that, that will be a wonderful way for us to actually make it really simple to identify issues up front and then to say, right, we need to do something further in this. But at the moment, I would say that it's really critical for boards to understand psychological safety in terms of their own personal and professional risk and, and making sure that it's going through into their organisations as a measuring, monitoring and evaluating that on an ongoing basis. And I think part of the problem with us having internal processes that do that is that the very people that are reading those reports half the time are constricted by that conflict of interest. They, they are actually reporting to the CEO or to that board quite directly. So having an external third party with a third view, I think, makes a lot of sense and will actually make sure that there's no sanitising of reports that the boards are getting also. Well, look, thank you so much. This has been absolutely fantastic and it is the perfect piece to start to raise people's awareness about this psychological safety. And, I mean, it feels to me that straight up there are simple things people can do, right through to there are some very in-depth and, you know, really important things that can be done to assist boards and their organisations remove those barriers to making the problem in the first place. So, Carolyn, it has been really interesting talking with you today. Congratulations on your white paper. And I am really excited about continuing to work with you. And I think that from my perspective, from all of the discussions we've been having around the boards needing to lead from the top on all of these new contemporary risks that um, we've discussed, climate change, gender equity, social inclusion, and many, many more things, I think being aware of psychological safety, being present at the boardroom table, allowing those really strong discussions that have to happen, I think will really be a, a first step towards us actually leading better on these things. So thank you. It's been wonderful discussing this with you today. All right. Thank and you. That's a real pleasure. And thank you to everybody who's come today. And we hope you have a fabulous rest of the day and have enjoyed our series. Thank you very much.